Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I went on, I said, mayday, mayday. This is, and I, I heard the pilot say, some bloody idiot shouted mayday. Who's that? You don't know. So no, no, this is a real mayday. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast. Uh, it's been a while since I've sat down and recorded one of these, and it's a very odd time to be doing it. We uh, certainly are living in very uncertain times at the moment. We'd actually planned on hanging on to all these episodes for a little bit longer, um, saving up all the content we've been creating uh, to do a fairly big launch and push in the next few weeks, actually. We'd planned a lot of new recordings and new interviews and booked a lot of slots in, all really exciting and disappointing that most of them won't come off for a little while now but I'm pretty sure that we'll still be able to sit down with everyone it's just a matter of when and how um, we do however have a little mini archive of stuff that we did record uh, so we're going to be pushing that out over the next few weeks and months while we work out what's going on internationally uh, because it doesn't seem right that all of these incredible stories are sitting there at a time where people could do with a little pick-me-up we were also about to properly launch our Patreon subscription service, as a few people signed up on there already. Um, we're not asking for people to sign up right now. You've only got one tier, and it's $3 a month. Uh, it just helps us cover the rent and pay the bills and that kind of thing. And the plan was to release the features for free, as ever, and as they'll always be, but to have dispatches and other little bits of special content um, on Patreon only for our subscribers, just for those who want that little bit extra. But it just doesn't feel right that all of that sits behind a paywall right now. So we're going to release everything that we've got on the hard drive for free over the next little while. In terms of who we've interviewed, uh, I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but we've spoken to lots of people who are used to spending long periods of time alone. Uh, along with this episode, we've got four mini Antarctic dispatches. I think they range from 10 to 20 minutes each. And then what we're calling our first proper special uh, with two extremely talented uh, polar superstars. But yeah, I'm going to save that for now. And as ever on the podcast, we're partnered with Kendall Mountain Festival and Sidetrack Magazine. It's a very tricky time uh, for most of us, and it's a tricky time to be running a small business. And Kendall Mountain Festival and Sidetrack are doing all they can uh, to stay afloat and to keep functioning. The guys at Kendall are keeping us and the world updated with ticket sales and tour dates and what they're doing, but for now things are definitely on hold. And the guys at Sidetracked are offering 50% off their entire archive. So if you like these sorts of stories and whether you um, currently read the magazine or whether you don't, you should check it out and try and support them if you can. Hopefully the podcasts that we're going to release are inspiring and informative, um, or at the very least kind of entertaining and in some way can transport you somewhere else for a little while. And before I introduce you to the guy that we're speaking to today, uh, be safe, play by the rules, and try and enjoy the time at home. And from all of us at the Adventure Podcast, we hope these stories help in some way. 
man we are speaking to today is Ian Sykes. Uh, literally everyone calls him Spike. Spike's actually quite a hard man to introduce. It's not your normal, he's a polar explorer or he's a climber, etc. He's done a lot of things. Uh, I actually made a film with him called Kukulin um, a few years ago, which we'll link in the show notes. And basically, uh, the team at Cold House and I spent a while on the Isle of Skye filming with Spike and an ultra runner called Finley Wild for a short film about an accident that happened on the island. And we got to know Spike quite well and ended up um, beachcombing for mussels and he played the banjo and drank whiskey whilst we ate mussels and sang songs. It was an incredible, incredible week and I absolutely adored his company. Uh, he was one of the first people that we ever interviewed for the podcast. This has been sat on a hard drive for almost two years. We weren't saving it for anything in particular. It was just there and now we've decided that it needs to uh, live and breathe and do the rounds. And Spike's done many, many things. Uh, he started out his career working on the professional mountain rescue teams. Uh, he's still a volunteer to this day. He also founded the Nevis Range uh, up in the Highlands, one of the biggest ski resorts in the UK, a place I've personally spent many happy weekends. But I guess uh, lesser known about Spike is that he spent two years as a sled dog driver in the late 60s in Antarctica for the British Antarctic Survey. He had some absolutely sensational experiences down there. It was one of those interviews where you just sit and talk with somebody who feels a lot like an old friend and the list of questions in your head just goes out the window and you sit down and have a chat over a couple of glasses of whiskey. So for the first time since I got back from the Rewima expedition, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to our latest guest, Ian Spike Sykes. Spike, how was it that you ended up going to Antarctica? Well, uh, I was very lucky, really. Um, I was instructor at uh, what was, was then Lockheel Centre, which was a, a little outdoor centre. It's now an outward bound school, but uh, in those days it was uh, just a privately run centre. But we used to swap over instructors at with Glenmore Lodge, and I was quite friendly with John Cunningham, who had been down in the Antarctic a couple of times, well-known sort of mountaineer. And I was over there one day, and John was showing some photographs of Antarctica and just said to me, you know, it's the kind of thing you would really like. And I actually never imagined that I'd uh, I'd go, but I thought, well, I'll, I'll apply and see. And I was just really lucky. I, I went down, must have done a reasonably good interview at the time, and uh, I got a job as a as a as a dog driver, you know. Which, I mean, I'd never driven a dog in my life. I didn't know very much about it, uh, and uh, and that was it. Off I went, and just the way the luck turned out, I went to what I considered to be the best base, which is a dog driving base at Stonington. Uh, on the way south, I was very lucky. Went down to the Falkland Islands. This is a long time before the Falkland War. It was. Uh, 1966 and uh, uh, they were putting in a new base at Halle Bay and I managed to actually get down the Weddell Sea which very few of the Antarctic survey people that work on the peninsula get to so I got a trip down to Halle Bay did a bit of work helping them construct the hut and then back and down to Stonington and uh, I was there for two and a bit years really. Amazing so Right at the start, once you found out you got the job, what were the weeks like leading up to leaving? Well, it wasn't that good, really. In those, there'd been a, 
um, a chap at Halle Bay, in fact, had got appendicitis and they, they'd had to, you know, the boys on the base had had to take his appendix out. So they put it round, would, uh, would we have our appendix checked? And bugger me, the, uh, my doctor said, oh, we'll just take him out. <laughs> and so my last two or three weeks at home, I was staggering around holding my side. And I've always regretted it. There's nothing wrong with my appendix. Uh, so it's somewhere in the bottom of the sea at Fort William. <laughs> it was one of those things you just didn't, I didn't want it done. And I never felt that it did me any good at all. And uh, <laughs> I was very uncomfortable, even going down on the boat. I was having trouble with it. Yeah, it's different times. Um, how did you get there? What was the boat? Uh, well, I went down on the Shackleton. It was a very small uh, small boat. And uh, we sailed from... Uh, where, where did we sail from? from um, God, it's gone out of my head. Uh, anyway, we went down to to Montevideo, and uh, that was the last time for two and a half years that we saw any girls. A very, very pretty lot in Monte, and then across the Falkland Islands, and then South Georgia, Deception Island, various ways on the way. Stonington was about the last port of call of the boat, so I was actually on the ship for about four months or, or more, uh, and. I, what did two or three of us went and spoke to the captain and said, you know, we'll go mad sitting here on on the boat. So I signed on as uh, as crew, and just worked as crew on the boat going down, which was great. You know, it was a good experience and taught me quite a bit about the sea. And uh, and then down on base, loved it. What did that involve being crew? What was life like on the boat? Well, <clears throat> it it wasn't too difficult. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we. Uh, there was a lot of sort of just working as a as a deck hand, and we had to work shifts. And I remember the captain saying that, uh, you know, if you um, if you if you do this and we're in port and you're on shift, it's hard luck, you know. Uh, but as it turned out, it it was the best thing was we got to know the crew very well on the ship. Uh, you know, learnt to splice cables and wires and things like that. We were doing quite interesting work. The ship was doing. Uh, uh, seismology, you know, letting off explosions in the sea and trying to work out the depth and stuff like that. So there's quite a lot of really quite interesting stuff. And although we did, you know, when we went into Montevideo, I got stuck on 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 board ship some of the time. Actually got out with the crew, which was a lot more fun than it would have been if I'd just gone out myself. The, the, it was a Falkland Island crew. And it, the, in the days that uh, people didn't have rings in their ears and rings in their noses and things this lot certainly did it was uh it was it was quite fun i was going to ask you a bit about the men on the ship you know what were they like what sort of people were they well they were grand you know the, the shackleton's very small boat it was uh I, to give a scale to it it actually went through the caledonia canal so it's it's um it's i couldn't tell you what the tonnage was or, or whatnot but um and there was probably about 12 of us Antarctic blokes on, on the way down and then it get joining as we were going to different bases where they, they, they had two ships at that time the uh, uh, the John Bisco and the and the shack the shack being the smaller of the two <clears throat> and that year they'd hired uh, a Danish boat the Pearl of Dam which was doing the work out down the Weddell Sea to to Halle Bay 
It was actually on all three boats at, at various various times. Uh, Captain Frosty Turnbull was uh, an absolute uh, classic. Uh, ships, you know, bearded and uh, very rough and ready, and uh, treated as we we call ourselves FIDS. Falkland Island stands for Falkland Island Dependency Surveys or Flipping Idiots Down South or. Like and he always says, "You fits are useless. Keep out of my way," which we did. Uh, but he was a, a fantastic seaman, and uh, I, you know, grew to admire him very much. And particularly when Deception Island erupted, uh, uh, he he was just just wonderful. Well, we'll come on to Deception Island in a second. Yeah. But um, he told me the lifeboat story with Frosty. Oh yeah, well, that was quite interesting. The the, the, the ship's officers had obviously been having a uh, an argument as to how well the ship's lifeboats would work and uh, they decided that when we were in Stanley Harbour which is actually a great big open bay uh, that they'd maybe do a, a lifeboat practice and check and get everybody into the one boat and, and put it over the side which they did so we're all jammed in this big rowing boat Thing. There must you know, by that time there were about twenty of us in in the boat, and it sort of puddled away. But you couldn't actually work the oars because there were so many people in it. And we got maybe about a hundred yards from the from the ship when two spouts of water started coming up through the thing, and somebody had taken the bungs out of the out of the boat. And uh, looking over from the, uh, the there was Captain Turnbull with a great big smile on his face watching the antics of us trying to paddle this thing back to the ship so uh, I, I, I knew damn well who took the <laughs> took the bungs out so that's uh, yeah, always one of the early stories of the uh, on board the shack uh, they were they were rough and ready the, the boats in those days nowadays they've got whopping great big uh, you know ice uh, ice breaking ships that they use but uh, uh, Shackleton wasn't, it was ice strengthened in the bow, but she was, uh, um, had to be very careful with her in, in the ice. And so, what was the first port of call? Uh, first place we went to was South Georgia, and uh, there we, it was, that we because we were going down to Stonington, um, we had to get to, uh, elephant seals for dog food. So we actually shot about 200 uh, elephant seals. Uh, so that was the first time I'd ever come across anything quite like it. It was a little bit of carnage on the, on the beach to get, to get them and loading them onto the, onto the ship. Uh, and then, lucky, I managed to go climbing. I, uh, just a couple of small mountains in the, in the area of, uh, of Gritviken, which was, was great. Nobody seemed to mind if we shot off and went went climbing. So the ship was in for about four four or five days. So we we uh, we got got that, and the whaling station was still um, it it had closed the year before we went down, but it still had a small crew of people looking after it. So it was still in a sort of working order. And it was quite interesting to uh, well, I saw it twice. I saw it um, when we came back, uh, sort of. Two and a half years later, uh, and it was by that time there'd been quite a lot of looting had taken place, so uh, it was 
beginning to look pretty broken up. And then uh, I went back in 2002 on a on a trip down in South Georgia. I just couldn't get over it. It had totally transformed. The place was a was really derelict, and uh, and you know the 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 base. The, the beautiful base that had been there had been destroyed during the Falkland Island War, and a new modern uh, sort of corrugated iron horrific structure had gone up, which was the Fids base now, which was more like a an ugly factory, and uh, of course the, the these tourist boats were coming in as well, so you know you're getting large numbers of people landing on going and having a look at Shackleton's grave and. The old church and and the, and the Delrict uh, uh, whaling station, and there were things like signs saying "Please keep off the grass." So it was so, so utterly bizarre seeing it sort of thirty, forty years later than 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 it was when we first went down. Yeah, but so what was next? Deception Island. Uh, Deception Island, uh, which was um, that's a. A theoretically extinct volcano, and uh, it's like a almost like a South Seattle. You know, it's, a, it's a, the uh, crater lake inside. You can actually sail in with it. The ship went through a thing called Neptune's Barrows into the inner bay, which was um, maybe about seven by two miles. Quite a big, big uh, open water bay, very very sheltered, and <clears throat> there were three bases there. There was a a British, uh, British base and Argentinians and Chilenos, all a few miles from each other, uh, pretty friendly at the time, uh, and we we'd built an airstrip in there and was in the process of building a an aircraft hangar. So I'd gone to to work on on the air, aircraft hangar while while the ship was going off to other things. So we were there for a, a few days. Actually, uh, the Shackleton had come back in, um, and I'd gone aboard. It was had sailed off when there's this uh, uh, emergency came onto the radio that the island was erupting. So the ship spun round, headed straight back to deception. Sure enough, here's this whopping great volcano going off in the in the middle of it the blokes on base were uh, frosty took the ship straight into the bay but it was far too dangerous the the there were by this time there were about three or four different eruptions going off at different prices around the bay so uh, he just cut out again and and left and in fact the the blokes on the base had a real epic they managed to the one of the um, one of the volcanoes had gone off at the back of the Chile base, and during the night, a whole lot of very frightened and uh, uh, exhausted Chileans turned up. But luckily, uh, there was a Chilean ship. The Yelcho was in the vicinity, and it had a helicopter on board, and uh, they all went out. And got to the outside of the island on a uh, there's a, a wee gap through called the window. They got through the window, and the, the Chileans uh, got them got everybody off. So nobody hurt, which was a miracle. And then 
a few days later, it died down. So we went in with the Shackleton and I was working on the beach. Uh, we were retrieving stuff from the base, really trying to rest, you know, save as much stuff as we could. And uh, all of a sudden, woomph, the whole darn thing went off again. I've never seen anything like it. It was just as if you were standing next to an atomic bomb. It was quite incredible. And luckily, we were able to get into the ship's scow, get across. The Frosty hung on for us, got aboard, and out we went. And it, it, was, it was okay. You know, the, the really amazing, interesting thing, there's these um, Amer um, Antarctic birds, sheathbills. They're like a, about the size of a pigeon, beautiful white things that are, rather an ugly little beak on the, on the front of them. And they're not that good flyers. And all of a sudden, the whole of the ship got covered with these sheath bills, and they were getting out as well. So so the, we, we went out with a big pile of birds on board as well. <laughs> it's quite interesting. But there were thousands of dead seal and penguins on the, the... The bay had actually boiled at one point, and it had been, you know, a lot of wildlife in there. So it was it's really... That was it. Uh, so the following year, I, by that time I was down at Stonington, but the, the following year uh, they re-established the base and uh, got all started up and it erupted again, almost exactly the same sequence of events. Fortunately, nobody hurt. Uh, I think it was John Bisco actually got, got the people out and uh, at that point the British pulled out and said, oh, we're having no more of this. So we... We closed our base altogether. Well, these days you'd think that after an experience like that, they'd just send you home or they'd ship you off back to Argentina for a bit. To... Well, actually, quite a few people did. The, the, the boys on the base all had to go home that, that were on that base. And also there was a whole lot of builders that had gone down to help, well, to, to actually build this aircraft hangar. And uh, so they they lost their jobs as well and just just went home it was uh, so it was pity you know but quite a few of them came down the following year so they got two goes at it <laughs> so i wouldn't fancy being on a uh, blowing up volcano more than once <laughs> it's quite happy the ones <laughs> but it was it was worth it just for the it was the sight of a lifetime yeah yeah i bet and so then down to Stonington, i guess Yes, we're, we're again very lucky because Stonington being the last port of call, so we called in all the existing uh, bases and into places like Hope Bay that have been closed for quite a number of years, and uh, so Port Lacroix and uh, Argentine Islands, and then on down. And we also called in on sort of friendly visits to Argentinian and Chilean bases and and a Russian base at Bellingshausen. Where, we were in there, so got a really quite a good look at different to how different people were going on down the peninsula. But by far, the you know sort of arriving at Stonington was I. It was just like um, being in in the Alps. You know, this beautiful mountain scenery. We we came up this uh, fjord. We couldn't actually get to the base that year. The the sea ice had, was still in in any fjord, so the ship crashed away in as far as she could get. And then these dog teams came running out uh, to to meet us, and all the cargo got thrown over the uh, 
over the side and they were running it. And of course, the first time I'd seen, uh, I'd, well, I'd seen huskies before and I, actually I'd seen dogs in use at Halle Bay uh, a little bit, but they weren't, they were, they'd been kind of pet dogs that were used around the base and they, but this lot, where they turn out these massive dogs, very very powerful, and uh, it was it was a real really exciting sight. You know, you soon to discover that dogs uh, knew far more about dog driving than you did. But uh, we'll maybe come to that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a total baptism of fire. Yeah, yes, it, it, I remember that one of the things that happened when the that we the. the of course, the, the guys that came out to meet us hadn't seen anybody for a year. You know, the, the, the ships only went in once a year. So, uh, well, it probably been about eight months because the ships had been in the area for a bit. And then, uh, so they were getting their mail and stuff. They, everyone was quite shy at it. Uh, and uh, they were also very pleasant. They all spelt a bit of dog. And uh, all of a sudden, one of, the, one of the dog teams started having a scrap, you know, this and all of a sudden, these these blokes who had been quite sort of friendly and gentle leapt over the side of the ship and started beating the hell out of the dogs and dragging them apart. And it all happened so quick, you know, just couldn't believe it, you know. But uh, you found afterward, you know, as you learned to understand dogs and how it all worked, that you had to, if, if there was a bit of a scrap on, you know, you get a lot of injuries and whatnot. So you had to react very quickly. Now, it was quite an interesting sight. <laughs> so what were the... What were the first jobs when you got off the ship? Well, actually, I was only at Stollington for about four or five days. And uh, I took over a team called the Vikings from a bloke called John Noble, who who I actually knew him slightly. He was a climber. Uh, just know him in the lakes a wee bit when we were younger. And John was quite upset handing, the, handing his dogs over. He'd had them for a couple of years. And uh, so I was out, uh, just being shown roughly the ropes of what you to do, and then we were taken back on board ship with my dogs and uh, four other dog teams, and we went to uh, Blakelock Island, which was uh, about fifty or sixty miles to the north, uh, to do some survey work, and it was really a sort of training trip for there were two. Uh, you know, experienced uh, second year men with their dogs, and myself and uh, Jack Holly and Flavel Smith with his dogs. Uh, and we were the two new boys learning learning the trade sort of thing. And the idea was to work for about a month until the sea ice formed up for the for the winter, and then head back to Stonington in time for midwinter. But that year was a very strange weather. It was very classic of what happens in Scotland occasionally. It, uh, instead of getting cold, it got wet. It actually rained on Midwinter's Day and the sea ice didn't form very well at all. We made various attempts to get back to Stonington and each time we finished up with, uh, with you know, bad, bad sea ice and various things had to go back. And there's a little field hut at... Uh, uh, on Blakelock, it was like about the size of a garden shed. Uh, so we actually spent midwinter. We, we camped alongside this little hut and used it. To, it was mostly filled with uh, with man food, uh, and we we got stuck out right over midwinter. 
<clears throat> and I, I learned later that they'd been very worried, worried back in London because, it, you know, it, it had uh, it had been supposed to be about a month's trip. They were out for probably about two and a half months. And uh, in in very freakish, the, the, the tents were getting buried and, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, it was also, we were very short of, of we were plenty of man food for us, but there wasn't a lot of dog food, so we were out hunting constant, constantly trying to get seal. And I think in London they were, they were very concerned about us. Whereas for me, I was the sort of new boy, this seemed quite normal. And uh, I was actually having a whale of a time. It was, you know, it was really exciting. It's stuff I'd never done before. And, uh, all, you know, things happened that I never dreamt would get involved in. It's was, it was really, so I loved it. And then we got back to Stockington about a month after the midwinter and uh, all was well. <laughs> so when you're in the hut, it, it sounds like the days were kind of long and busy, um, but fun. What were the evenings like? Well, uh, remember we'd lost the sun by the, it, we still had the sun when we got there, but uh, uh, over the midwinter period there was there was no sunshine, although it did it did get light. Uh, I spent really we, we spent quite a lot of time sitting in our sleeping bags reading books and uh, things. Um, I uh, uh, well, I spent a lot of time out trying to learn to run my dogs really they I discovered that they had a mind of their own and you had to really sort of become the boss and to to understand it and you got to be able to um sense when there was trouble before it came and and, and sort it out and uh and actually found I really enjoyed it you know it's the most exciting th- thing possible to, uh, to do and hunting for seal was interesting, you know. Uh, so uh, I I liked that. Well, it got a bit boring for a while because we'd only got so many books and things like that. So two of us wrote a play, and it, I mean it was bizarre because we decided that we when we got back to Stonington we'd put put this play on. So it was a, a form. There were four of us out on the trip, and uh, we made them learn their parts and whatnot. You, you can imagine the four blokes in sort of suits doing practicing their parts in, in the middle of this little tiny hut you know in the, in the, it's, it's quite good fun you know to to do it unfortunately when I put the play on uh, we put we had a midwinter's party back at Stonington belated and uh, by the time my play was put on everybody was so drunk that they made a real mess of it and I was extremely annoyed <laughs> I think I showed you a photograph of, uh, of the yeah. play that had gone out of skew. I remember a man wearing a pair of curtains as a dress. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> what did it involve learning to drive dogs? What were kind of the main processes and what was there to learn? Well, um, we we ran, we'd, at Stonington we had about a hundred dogs running and maybe 50, 60 pups on top of that that were sort of building up. Um, getting ready to to join the teams and we were running 12 dog teams and normally you ran a a night where mostly the main dog teams was nine nine dogs one of which would be a bitch or uh, 11 
team of, of bitches with a with a single uh, castrated dog as a uh, just to keep them interested uh, and uh, really it it was just patience that you had to you know um, they the dog the, the dogs loved it you know they were they're really healthy fit animals and I reckoned by the time I left Stonington, I knew the name of literally every dog, apart from one or two pups that were uh, that hadn't come up. We, we all knew that and knew their traits and personalities, and and quite a lot about their family of you know uh, they developed over quite a, uh, a number of years. Um, there were kind of two strains. There were Greenland dogs and. Uh, can, Canadian dogs are slightly different uh, huskies and although they mated together they always seemed to get the pups would come out one one kind or to other uh, <clears throat> and uh, they just like pulling the huskies once you once they get the knack of it and uh, as I say in lots of cases, the dogs were far more experienced than their drivers. You know, some of the some of them had done thousands of miles of of sledging. Uh, they were very just you know they'd get nervous if there were crevasses about, which is a good warning to us. And uh, they didn't like open water leads and things like that. And you just uh, you 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 learnt to talk to them, and in fact. On a sledging trip where you're out for several months at a time, you kind of run out of an awful lot to talk about with the people that you're sledging with. Apart from the dogs, everybody's talking about their dogs the whole time. And uh, you, um, uh, you know, it, it would be far more pleasant to go sit out and talk to your dogs than to talk to the bloke that you were stuck in the tent with, you know. It's quite interesting. So did you have a teacher? Was somebody there to teach you how to do it? Well, yes. The first the first year um, tended to be the new boys, uh, and uh, the guy, the guys that were that had done a year before were passing on the information. And then the second year, you were the teachers and uh, took on the the new lot, and it seemed to work very well. And that was why in those days the Antarctic Survey was at least a two year contract and uh, occasionally when there has, wasn't a good crossover um, uh, you know people would be uh, I remember the, at Adelaide Island which is to the north of us uh, on my second year uh, one of the guys that was that they only had a couple of dog teams there and they both drivers went back home for, the, for personal reasons so the new guys hadn't got anybody to teach them. So we spent a lot of the time on the radio chatting to the to them, telling them what to do. And then quite early in the winter when the sea ice reformed, myself and uh, another bloke went up to Adelaide and met them. They came in off the plateau and we took them, took them back over to Stonington and started teaching. And they developed quite good sledging techniques themselves and it was just a little bit strange you know the way they set themselves up whatnot uh, when the whole lot of us had got this very very similar pattern of, of doing it 
that uh, particular trip, I think I told you about it, was um, we went, um, we uh, sledged up from Stonington. It's about a four days trip up to, a couple of days up to Horseshoe Island. And then to get across to Adelaide, you had to cross Le Berf Fjord. So we went across and landed up on a beach which is called Rothera Point, which was at that time was just a glacier coming down onto a gravelly beach, which is now one massive uh, Antarctic Survey base. We knew it was a spot that had been chosen as a base site, but uh, there was just nothing there at all. And we met these two two guys coming across, decided that the sea ice wasn't that good we'd come across and we thought we'd try and get back quick in case it broke out before things. So we sledged back across, this was about a 12 mile crossing, and then up onto the Jones Ice Shelf. It was still winter time, so there was no, no sun, but there was a big shining moon. And uh, we got up onto the, onto the Jones Ice Shelf and quite a lot of, it was quite bad to crevasse just at the start, so it was quite an awkward, bit of getting up and then the radio came on and there was another group of our blokes with some dogs down at the far end of the Jones which was seven or eight miles down across the the ice shelf so we decided that we'd keep going it was a it'd been a long day but we kept going and went down and about the last mile or so uh, my dogs heard these other dogs ahead you know the, the this tremendous dash as soon as they realised there was something ahead. And we got there, and normally you would pick at your dogs and look after them a bit. In this case, we just left them, dived into the tent, and listened to Neil Armstrong land on the moon. And it was the most, you know, it, it was just utterly bizarre, this great full moon shining. And here's, you know, a couple of blokes sitting on the moon and us sitting in Antarctica in probably just about as isolated a place. And uh, it, it was just, I also, I'll remember it to the day I die. I suppose like people remember when, where they were when Kennedy was shot, you know. It's just, uh, it was just astonishing, really fascinating. And they probably had a better map of the moon than where we were because there was no map where we were. <laughs> it was quite interesting. What was the camaraderie like? You know, you sat in the, you sat in the tent with these blokes listening to Neil Armstrong land on the moon and what you know you don't know these people when you leave well we were we were um, very lucky at Stonington the there were 11 of us on base uh, both both the years that I was there plus during the summer when there's uh, the ships are about we get a few other people uh, knocking about but normally it's about 11 of us and they used to have what they called good and bad years. You know, sometimes bases would have problems. Uh, but I was very lucky at Stonington that we all got on very well together. Very different, you know, because uh, there was probably about half of us were uh, sort of ignorant climbers and uh, the other half were... 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, you know, scientists of various kinds, uh, scientists in, in a very student way, they're all, we're all very young, you know, there's nobody. Uh, I, was, I was slightly older than most of them because I'd been in the RAF for five years prior to going down. But I was still in my late twenties when I, when I got there. Uh, most of them, have, you know, a lot of them, it was their very first job. They'd come out of university and they were doing a PhD or something like that. So they were, we're all very young and uh, it was quite interesting. It was uh, very formal. People weren't, um, we weren't rude to each other, you know, particularly, uh, uh, certainly not in a, in a, I can't remember any really serious, you know, people would di- disagree and, and there are people that you don't particularly, you know, that they, they wouldn't be your pals if you were at home with them. But, you know, when you've kind of got to live with them for long periods of time, you just kind of get on with it and uh, doing, oh, it's a sledge with people that I wasn't that keen on. But uh, everybody that was there was enthusiasts, you know, in one way or another for what they were doing. If it, if it was a geologist, you know, they, they'd be desperately trying to show what he knew about the geology of the area. And it was my job to get him to the places he wanted to go to, you know. So it was, it, it was okay. How similar was it to working in the RAF and in the mountain rescue? <clears throat> Well, it wasn't the services, that's for sure. You know, I mean, um, I was a, a fairly low grade irk in my mountain rescue days in the RAF, and uh, uh, the mountain rescue was a little world in its own, slightly out of the the rest of the RAF. And in lots of it, I suppose it was very similar. We were a, a bunch of us, the mountain rescue unit at Kinloss was kind of a slightly separate from the from the rest of the station and uh, most of us were you know dressed in climbing gear rather than than uniform which made life a, a lot better so um similar in, in lots of ways and then, but but it was military as well so uh, and uh, so we were sort of roughly obeying the rules of the services but uh, Having a whale of a time climbing as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, like a little band of yeah. band of folk, I guess. I mean, how much contact did you have with the outside world? A kid loss. No. Oh, it's Donington. Yeah. Uh, well, we had um, we were allowed uh, fifty words a month, uh, which we were went and it was relayed. In those days, it was a, um, it went out on key, you know. Morse code to Adelaide Island, which had a much bigger uh, radio setup, 
and they then it was uh, telexed. Uh, no, well, I think it was radio radio to Spot Stanley in the Falklands, and then telexed to UK, and then to your parents, and you got a hundred words a month back. So it was wasn't a lot, uh, and. Actually, my mother never seemed to get round too much to say, you know, she sent me stuff every now and again, but at times I got kind of worried because there was nothing going on and they kind of forget about you after a while. So, uh, what did your family think of you going? Well, I, I think my mother was always very supportive, you know, and by the time I'd gone, I mean, I'd been in the RAF prior to that, and uh, um, I, th- I think she was quite pleased in, in lots of ways that I was doing something. Uh, I think because I was uh, I, I was such a you know obsessed climber when I was younger. Uh, I think they were very worried that I wasn't going to do anything or make anything out of, of my life really. And uh, all of a sudden, I started doing re- these really odd things. <laughs> so I, I think she was quite pleased in in a way. Yeah. What about mail? Well, we got the mail once a year. Uh, when the ship came came in, uh, so that was also an interesting time. The uh, um, rather stupidly, most most of the guys had got girlfriends when they when they left, and uh, one or two people got engaged, and all sorts of things, which is a very silly thing. Two and a half years when you're in your twenties is quite a long time. So uh, when the mail came in, there was very or nearly all these. Uh, we call them chings. Used to get, get they'd open the letter and it would be the girlfriend saying that she was very sorry, but she'd met a very nice bloke somewhere. And here's a photograph of little Cyril, the first of the children, <laughs> and uh, um, so we managed to kind of laugh it off in in, in a way and just keep going. Uh, and. Uh, I, I suppose a lot of change. I remember one of the things that really struck me was the Britain had been a very um, quiet place when I, by the time I left, it had been the Cold War had been going on in between myself and the Russians, particularly while I was in in the RAF. But the country as a whole was, you know, in a, quite a peaceful state. And during the time I was down there, the first sort of Irish troubles started. The, I remember Bernadette Devlin tearing up paving stones in in Belfast and things like that, and being absolutely shocked and couldn't believe that such a thing was happening, which was very mild to what was to to follow. Uh, so, the, you know, sort of history was going on quite quite a lot around you, and you were in this little bubble of of not. And I remember when I w- went back, there'd been quite a lot of inflation, uh, so the you know, country had been going through fairly difficult times, and I just couldn't believe the prices that things had got. You know, things, up to my going south, uh, inflation had been just very, very t- tiny price. You know, it had been very steady, and it had gone up into I don't know, 12, 14 percent, something like that. And I just couldn't believe how expensive things had got. And I actually felt really robbed, you know, if you're going to a shop. I guess you get quite angry. It's very strange. And Montevideo in particular, when we went back, uh, they'd had, uh, they were running at about 400% inflation. And 
it was just absolutely incredible. The city had been absolutely beautiful when when we went south, and you could really see that just in a couple of years the um, the place had really got shabby, and you know there was no nobody cleaning the streets, and it's, it's terrible. So, what was it that appealed then? Because you know you're missing all of this stuff happening back home. You're not getting paid very well. It's cold. It smells like dog shit. <laughs> You're with a load of people that you wouldn't want to hang out with at home that you get on with because you're there. Yeah. Why did you want to go and why did you enjoy it? Well, I, I suppose, uh, well, it's, it certainly wasn't anything wrong with the blokes that I went down with it because, as it turned out, I, 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 when I first went down, I felt quite shy about it. You know, you, you were uncertain. Uh, but... Um, I suppose it was climbing, really. I, I, uh, I was fanatically keen on mountaineering uh, at the time, and it, it, this was a really a big chance to go. I didn't uh, think that I would be able to do as much climbing as I did manage to do. In fact, um, I thought there'd be a lot of restrictions on it. In, in actual fact, there was absolutely no restriction. Um, you could have could have gotten done anything. We didn't have very good equipment, uh, though I'd, I'd taken some, take my ropes down and some, you know, sort of fairly um, modest amount of climbing climbing gear with me, and there was a fair bit of stuff about on the base. But it was it was I, th- I reckoned it that was what I went for. Uh, the thing that I got out of it more than anything was the dog driving probably, and also. Um, you got other interests that you hadn't had before because there were some pretty interesting people there. You know, I did, did get interested in geology. And my second year, I did a lot of... Uh, I did a, um, a gravity and magnetics uh, survey with a geophysicist who's a very clever bloke. And it was... I really enjoyed going with him. And it, and it opened your mind up to uh, lots of other things. And that was a fab- fabulous trip because I said, well, where do you want to go? And he said, well, I just need to travel quite long distances. And all we had to do was go, we had to go five miles and take a, a reading. So we'd take a, a gravity and a, a magnetic reading and then do another five miles and do the same, which is just great with the dog team. Five miles is quite a good time to stop anyway for, a, a, you know, so bloody hundreds of miles, you know, of trogging around, went right down George the Sixth Sound and uh, out up onto the Polar Plateau and down onto the other side of the peninsula, onto the Larsen Ice Shelf and back over to Stonington. A huge journey uh, with not an awful lot of work to do and uh, with a bloke who was very clever and was also dead keen on climbing. So, you know, we would say, oh, well, that looks quite a good one over there. We'll go to our five miles is along and bag that peak on the way. You know, so it's a, it's a really good, good trip. So, how much did you get done climbing wise? How often were you going out? And oh, in the summer, a lot because um, we were working. We worked very hard, you know, doing the, the jobs that we were doing. But uh, summer in particular, it's twenty-four hour sunshine. So we would get in and can get the camp set up and do it. And uh, the mountains are, uh, in that part of the peninsula 
they're around about um, four or five thousand feet high, but you're on polar plateau, which is about two thousand feet. So they're actually about Scottish type mountains, and we couldn't do anything really too technical. Not, not if there's just a couple of you out in the in the bondo, but if uh, um, you know, just sort of a nice mountainous ridge, you know, you could go and plod up. And we're fit, you know, uh, we were sledging all day, you know. We we never rode on the sledges. We walked along, alongside on skis. Uh, so you were just walking and walking, you know. So it was plodding up a, a wee mountain was was nothing to us in those days, you know. It was great. <laughs> so, Marvellous. Yeah, well, it was good. Uh, one is two quite difficult stuff uh, about uh, well what I enjoyed most of Mount Wilcox I think I showed some photographs the other day uh, and uh, um, all over the peninsula there really um, and of course the, the, I'm not the only one loads and loads of people have been going down for many years so it's surprising how many of the mountains have been climbed down there. But it's a big mountain chain, you know, there's, there's thousands, thousands of peaks. It's a beautiful place. So tell me about Mount, Mount Wilcox. Well, that was uh, it's a very beautiful mountain. That's about six and a half thousand feet. I think it's actually called Mount Metcalf now. I think they've changed the name of it since uh, we were down there. There was always some confusion about on maps what was what but it was a very sort of matterhorny uh, shaped mountain a nice pointed one and we uh, to get to it from Stonington it wasn't that far but um, it was in a a, um, a very isolated system of glaciers that there was no easy route to get into and we'd, we'd had a an idea to try and have a, a little holiday and go there. So we, uh, a group of us took a week off and uh, we sledged in up uh, a thing called the Bypass Glacier at the back of Stonington and then had to climb over another one small group of mountains to get over a call, uh, which we actually hauled the dogs up on, the dogs pulling the sledge but uh, with us pulling the dogs up but their head up at this gully, and then uh, sledge down onto the onto this sort of hidden glacier at the back, and then into this beautiful mountain, and had made big sort of aluminium stakes, which we, uh, as we climbed up this big snow face, we managed to rig abseil points all the all the way up, and and then with a very nice ridge, not not too technical and it had this thing on the top called the gon we called it the the, the dongler this enormous sort of um uh huge chunk of overhanging snow sticking out you know 100 feet or so uh, and we actually when we got up onto the top we never dared actually go up on the top if this thing had come off you know you'd it lost so there were though we were above the height of the rock on it we never actually reached the the highest point on the mountain it would have been far too dangerous but it was a you know really good trip and I quite enjoyed it 
And uh, I remember Vivian Fuchs contacted and asked us what on earth we would do. He was, a, he was our boss at the time. He just said, on a little climbing trip. And he didn't seem to mind at all. So. As in the service. Dr. Fuchs, yeah. Oh, in the services, it would have been a different kettle of fish. <laughs> That's amazing. So, um, any other big standout climbs? What about um, uh, Not really. Had had uh, one or two sort of epic wee things happened. What, what, one um, was the um, end of my first year. Um, the ship had gone, and four four guys had got stranded at. Um, at Fossil Bluff, the aeroplane had crashed, and they'd um, they'd managed to get to the bluff. But unfortunately, by that time, there was no other aircraft to go down and get them out, and the ship couldn't have got down that far anyway. So they had to spend the winter at the bluff. So a group of from Stonington went set off early to go down and uh, and relieve them. They had a pretty miserable winter there, and they got south of uh, the, you, from Stonington is about 100 odd miles down to the bluff you went down uh, past an island called Terra Firma and then they uh, the radio came on at Stonners and the um, they were on they arrived on sea ice and got to an open lead that they couldn't get across had turned back to find the leads had opened up behind them and they were effectively floating around on on sea ice a very dangerous situation if, if the ice had blown out that would have been it so it was consternation at Stonington so uh, three of us sort of jumped got said we were away within the hour and uh, one of the best sledging trips I ever had it was going we took a, a rubber dinghy on the on my sledge, and uh, Derek Pothwaite was the um, actually leader of the party, um, and we. It, the weather wasn't good. It was it was snowing and and windy and and not nice, and we hadn't at that time been sledging in particularly bad weather. We were always very cautious, and uh, but on this occasion we just went for it. And I thought it was a, it was a great learning trip because we were having to push it and go like like mad to get to get down there, and we were able to uh, really push on and realise that you you could actually with dog teams travel in really bad weather if you if you if you had to uh, you you know, you're, you're a real difficulty to get the tents up and things like that, but uh, as it turned out as we headed south we we got within uh fairly close co- proximity of them when the uh the ice had closed up a bit and they managed to get across onto these islets called the puffball islets uh down there and by the time we got there uh the ice was forming up strong and it, so it it didn't it never developed into they never had to use the boat but uh, we gave up the idea of getting down to fossil bluff and Heading back to Stonington for for about another three or four weeks until the ice had had really got that, and then we all went down to the bluff, which was a a really good trip. So that was one 
thing. And another thing that happened was I sledged with a bloke called Ali Skinner. He was very nice. He was a geologist. And uh, we tr that particular trip, we normally we'd go with a dog team each, but Ali didn't actually at that time have a dog team. So we were traveling with just the one dog team. And you're supposed to work together, but it wasn't practical. Um, I, I was doing plane table mapping and he was putting the geology onto the map. And the problem was we were up on the Polar Plateau area. It was quite a nice little range of mountains we were doing the geology of. And um, I would go out and map when the wind went down. I couldn't really use my instruments if it was windy, whereas Ali could go down at any time. So I would jump out, you know, I'd think the wind's gone down in the middle because it was still sunshine all the time. So I could get up at three o'clock in the morning and go off, grab the dogs, go and do a bit of work. And then, and this Ali was one of these people that couldn't use a primer stove. So any climbers will know what that is. You know, the big yellow flames shooting up every time he pumped it. So uh, I used to wake in the mornings with Ali trying to make a cup of tea and the good yellow flame shooting by the side of your head. And you think, oh, gosh. <laughs> so anyway, on this particular day, I'd sledged, uh, I'd gone out early and I sledged up. And I was trying to, I'd left a big snow cairn at the top of one of the glasses and I was trying to complete a, a circle. And uh, I kept going, I kept thinking, I can't see it. You know, I went a lot. I was out a lot longer than I'd normally be. And as I came back, I saw smoke rising over the where the campsite was. And I thought, oh, what, you must be burning rubbish or something. And when I got there, uh, the tent was gone. <laughs> it had it'd, uh, it'd been uh, doing a job with, with a pot of glue and made himself a brew of tea and set the glue on fire and up had gone the tent. So... And actually, I thought, oh, this is something. Else. Oh, the the other problem was that the radio hung in the, the, the these pyramid tents, and we used to hang the radio up in the apex of the tent to uh, to keep it warm and keep the batteries warm. And of course, the radio had been on fire as well, so no way of letting anybody know. And it wasn't too desperate situation because we'd got plenty of food and uh, it, we were about 60, 60, 70 miles from Fossil Bluff. So I thought, well, you know, two, three days will get us, get us there. We'll, we'll build igloos and uh, do it. So I was quite excited about it. This is going to be a right good trip. Anyway, just we were packing everything up and getting it sorted out, and the, the, the radio, which was sort of charred, uh, sort of mess, I was messing about with it, and all of a sudden it crackled. I thought, gosh, it might still be working. And as luck had it, as I was doing the, the uh, I heard um, uh, one of the aircraft was just about to take off from Adelaide Island to fly down to Fossil Bluff, and. Uh, so I went on and I said, Mayday, Mayday, this is... And uh, I heard the pilot say, some bloody idiot shouted Mayday, who's that? You don't know. I said, no, no, this is a real Mayday. This is... And the good thing was, within a couple of hours, the 
they they flew in, dropped us a new tent, new sleeping bags, the the works, you know, and uh, it's as if nothing had happened. So that was it. That was it. One of my better better little happenings. <laughs> It turned out okay in the end. Yes, yeah, it's okay. You didn't get to build your igloos, though. Pardon? You didn't get to build your igloos, though. No, no, I never did it. <laughs> I've actually made one or two, but they're always pretty corny things. They weren't very, they weren't that good. <laughs> so how often did it go wrong? Go wrong? Yeah. At Stonington? Yeah. Not not a lot. Uh, they did, the, the, the that situation, they had the, the airplane crashed at, um, there were two, two crashes at Stonington while I was there with, we went, bass were going through aeroplanes like there was no tomorrow. There, there was quite a lot of trouble about it. They, it's a dangerous place for flying. They, they, uh, there's a lot of sastrugi, you know, they, these wind ridges. And um, the, the Pilates Porter had come in uh, to take a field party back home. And they were actually, both guys were on the end of their second year. So they were about to go home. And the plane uh, bashed a, a ski as it came in on a sastrugi, and uh, they uh, tied it up with a uh, climbing rope and one tried to get it. Thought it was okay, but uh, as he tried to take off again, the, the, the ski totally collapsed and the plane just ploughed in. So nobody hurt, and they were there with the with all the kit and a dog team. You know, but there's pilot, co-pilot, and two. In fact, they've got two dog teams, and uh, uh, so they sledged out to Fossil Bluff. But then they were stuck for for the whole winter, which was um, not not great. At the end of their two year stint. At the end of their the, two year stint, so they had to do an extra year. So that was why we we had this trip down to try and get them out early. And that went kind of wrong on the sea ice. And then there was, you know, the story I told you about as being stuck on uh, um, Blakelock Island on my first sledging trip. I think that was the only two that that went seriously. There's a very uh, nasty thing happened at um, uh, Argentine Islands. One of the blokes got ulcerative colitis and... um, they didn't have a doctor there. They didn't actually know what he, what he was suffering from, and that my second that was on my second year, and um, uh, we had a doctor that year at Stonington, uh, Mike Holmes, and he did a very good job of diagnosing it, talking to the um, base commander at Argentine Islands, and they uh, that year they uh, there was various attempts. To get him out there, they're quite far north, the uh, the Argentines, and uh, in in the end, an Argentinian aircraft flew in to uh, uh, and managed to land on the sea ice, and they loaded Ken Portwine onto the ship, onto the onto the aircraft, but it hit a berg as it took off, and and that crashed. And again, nope. They got him out. Nobody hurt uh, or a thing. So they then landed up with an Argentinian doctor and air crew, plus Ken on it. And finally, the British ship, the uh, the Endurance, uh, managed to get within 
about 50 60 miles of of the islands and uh, flew a helicopter in and got him out and uh, flew him to Buenos Aires where he was operated on but he he didn't survive he he died and uh, that year I think they um, they had a very bad year at Argentina the whole thing had uh, ups, you know upset everybody quite a lot and so they moved them around so they they put a, a new crew into the base and quite a few of the guys from the Argentine Islands came down and joined us on the, on the uh, later on. But mostly, you know, uh, in those days, Antarctic Survey ran on a shoestring and uh, we were all just dead enthusiastic. And... I guess you had to be quite self-reliant. You know, you you were kind of there to do a job, but... You were also there as part of a team who just had to muck in whenever it got difficult. Well, it was a great it was a great learning curve, you know, that you discovered you can actually do anything if you believe in it. You know, that you, you, if your camera breaks down, you take it to a camera shop here. But if, if you're down in Antarctica and your camera breaks, you've got to take it to bits and uh, figure out what's what's wrong with it. You know, if the radio got in those days, it was valves, you know. You'd dig around and try and find the valve that was wrong and fix it. And, uh, you know, things things do break and go down. So you, you got uh, you got very self-reliant and you got very careful with things as well. You didn't... Uh, so I, I think it was a great learning curve. It's worked in later years. We got Nevisport going. Uh, you know, we... We rarely used shop fitters or anything like that. I managed to do tons of stuff myself, which I wouldn't have been able to do unless I'd been down in the Antarctic, I think. Yeah. Well, speaking of um, fixing things, and you mentioned Blakelock Island, can you tell me about the dogfight and the resulting surgery that was required? Oh, did I tell you that story today? The, um, that, was, that, that was on my first first trip... I'd actually, I was trying to stop smoking at the time. We all smoked in those days, you know, and it, uh, and I was going through the jumpy stage of having lasted about three weeks without. Uh, and anyway, my dogs had one hell of a scrap, you know, and I noticed on the first year I had lots of dog fights in my team, and on the second year I didn't have any, and it, it's obviously I didn't realise it, but you know, you began to pre you know be able to figure out they were going to have a scrap and you could stop it but uh, anyway I had a really bad fight and one of the dogs Devon um, got his eye cut to um, the, the bottom eyelid slashed open and the the eyeball dropped out and uh, you know the uh, had to had to do you know we sort of dragged him into the tent and tied his feet together so he couldn't struggle and tied his muzzle up and put the eyeball back in and stitched him up. And it was uh, it was the most nervous. I was terrified that I was going to stitch his eye, you know, when it was, because the dog was fighting like mad. Um, we'd given him a, a shot of uh, painkiller, but it didn't seem to have any effect on him at all. So... Uh, he certainly was totally conscious through the whole thing. I stitched him up and, 
when he when he finished, he licked me and went out as if nothing had happened. He also had a slightly twisted eye from that on, but it was it worked okay. So that was it. But I then uh, smoked about twenty cigarettes <laughs> straight one after the after the next. <laughs> so that was the end of my uh, that period of trying to stop. <laughs> you managed eventually then. Mm. So when you look back on your time in Antarctica, what are the kind of instant overriding memories and feelings? And well, I think it was the friendships really of, of the blokes. You know, we're, we're all st- I mean, quite a few of them have died since I, you know, since we went down went down sixty six, came back sixty nine. Um, so it's a long time ago. Uh, I suppose it. You remember all the good things and probably not some of the... Uh, I mean, there were definitely times when I felt homesick. <coughs> um, but I suppose, really, it was the beauty of the place. You know, in, the, in those days, the the isolation. I quite I liked it, you know. It, it, it suited me, and I don't think it would suit everybody. Uh I kind of feel sorry for them now. They go down and it's mostly they get flown down, do a job and get flown out again. Very few people winter there. Uh, And I think there are a lot of restrictions on it. But, you know, young people do good things all the time, you know. So I'm sure that they have the same kind of epics that that we had. Uh, But it's very different. I found it very strange when I went down in 2002, uh, went to Rothera and just couldn't get over the scale of the base and, you know, nice canteen and uh, cooks and uh, people with private rooms and stuff. It just, just uh, wasn't, it wasn't the world that I'd been in. Uh, but it was different and they were, you know, they were doing their thing just the same. And, you know, fantastic uh, Effort. The British have done very well in Antarctica, you know. Our output of serious science has been very, very good for the amount of, you know, small country have done an awful lot down there uh, with without an awful lot of cash. Yeah, it's all changed, but, yeah, it was such a unique time in your life. You know, do you, do you think about it much and... Think about it all the time, really. I mean, there's a whole lot of us. We're still friends. Want to constantly try to figure out ways of getting back down there again. <laughs> you know, it's. Um, uh, I suppose you know. I sort of lived in mountains anyway, uh, all, all my life. You know, and I suppose it was just one of those very lucky chances that that took me down there. Um, an awful lot of people done it. You know, it's not exactly that unique. It's probably British have been sending a couple of hundred blokes a year for many years, so it, it builds up in numbers quite quite a lot. Uh, you think you'll go back? Oh, I, I would really like to. Yeah, I think so. If, if any opportunity, really. Um, the trip we went down wasn't that. We had fairly poor weather. The... Uh, um, and uh, we were only at the sort of northern end of the peninsula. And I'd really, I was quite surprised. At the time we went down, the this global warming thing hadn't really got 
going too much. It, it didn't seem to me to be a huge change in, in the from where what I'd seen to you know sort of in the sixties to uh, you know sort of forty years had passed and uh, it, it you know you could see that some some places certainly on the Northern Islands had a uh, seemed to have a lot less snow, but they basically once you got down onto the main continent it looked much the same but i've been looking at um uh, like google earth pictures of it recently and it's quite astounding the difference of uh, you know some of the well the jones ice shelf you know where we saw the the landing on the moon um that doesn't exist anymore it's gone and it can't imagine that it's gone you know it was just a big solid shelf of ice miles and miles and miles of it and you know there's the size of north wales drifting out to sea from the from the weddell sea and these places so uh you know there's there's big big changes happening and it's i don't know how much i want to see it you know some some parts of me wants to see it we do want to go climbing mountains down there i think that would be the you know grand finale <laughs> so finally then with all of that in mind what do you hope the future holds for antarctica itself well i hope the antarctic treaty holds you know it's very worrying you know countries of uh, polarizing in, in lots of ways and uh, for all its faults and things the treaty has kept uh, you know the theoretically there's there's no military action uh, you know that no militarization of it in reality of course there is to a certain extent the uh, but uh, mostly it's been interesting science and whatnot there's still squabbling on ownership of of a country and, and you can see that um, you know as the earth's resources diminish uh, it's going to be very tempting to uh, to start uh, you know mining in Antarctica or drilling for oil or whatever uh, whatever they find down there um, and I think it would be an absolute tragedy you know it's a one place on earth where they, they seem to have got a, an international agreement that, that has held uh, through wars and all kinds of things so I suppose my my hope is that it that when the treaty uh, comes to an end, that it's re re signed and and kept going. Yeah, here's hoping. Mm. It's been brilliant, Spike. Thank you very much. Okay. Cheers. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and created by our little team uh, of myself, Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. You can email us uh, with feedback or suggestions for future guests at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. We've been having some problems with the emails, but they're all sorted now, so we are picking them up again. And finally, please do um, review the podcast on iTunes and places like that. It makes a massive, massive difference. Chuck us a star rating, write something nice if you fancy it, and please do tell your friends and spread the word.